If you guys haven't found out by now, if you haven't figured it out by now, I love millennials. I am big time all in on the millennial generation. I think they are amazing. I love their heart. I love their beliefs. I love that they're taking what their boomer grandparents believed and are chucking it out the window and saying, we're just not going to live that way. I think it's fantastic. I know it scares some of you boomers out there, but I just love it. Jordan Penner Maddox is a young man that lives in my area in Central California, near Fresno. I live in Fresno. He lives nearby. And he does a podcast called Fresno's Best Podcast. He asked me to come on his podcast, and then we agreed for him to come back on my podcast. So the the next two podcasts you're going to hear from me are going to be a two-part series with Jordan from Fresno's Best Podcast, talking about religion, some of it in our region and what it looks like, and the millennial view of of religion, because I'm fascinated with how millennials are looking at this stuff. I hope you'll stick around and hear part one here with Jordan Penner Maddox from Fresno's Best Podcast. First, let me tell you, have you seen my novel yet? Joseph Comes to Town, subheading when the religious right goes religiously wrong. It's my imagination of what Jesus on earth today would say to the right-wing evangelical church. Have you caught, have you caught it yet? Well, you can read it or you can listen to it in audiobook series on my Patreon site. Find out more about the book, how you can read it or how you can sign up to hear it by going to my website, pastor-paul.com. That'll take you to the podcast site. And there's a Joseph the Novel button for you to click at the top or in the directory on your iPhone or your, your mobile phone and check it out. I think the book is so good. It is, it is everything that I think Jesus would say to the church were he on earth incarnate today and everything we should be saying to the church. And I love it so much. And if you like audiobooks, you can join our NPE Patreon community. It'll tell you how. $5.99 a month gets you into the audiobook series and into our private NPE Facebook group. And if you sign up at $12.99, you'll get the audiobook series. And I'll send you an autographed copy of my paperback version of my book as well. So that's pastor-paul.com. Click on that Joseph the Novel button, and it'll tell you how you can access the book by paperback or join our Patreon community and get it by audiobook series and an autographed copy from me at that $12.99 level. All right. Hope you'll join. Look forward to meeting you and seeing you there soon. It's really, really cool. You're going to love it. Now to Fresno's best podcaster. That's what he says when he calls his podcast Fresno's best podcast and talking about the millennial generation in the church with Jordan Penner Maddox next on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast with Pastor Paul. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at NPEPodcast.com.
I was so excited when I found your podcast and your website in large part because I've lived a large portion of my life in places that I would consider the Bible Belt in a lot of ways where religion and politics get fused in ways that, you know, are natural but also can be destructive. And our country has a legacy from close to the beginning of trying to bridge that divide between religion and politics in large part because that, by, that divide was not bridged where those early English colonists came from. And so I guess my first question to you is, why did you start your podcast on your website? And what is your view of the relationship between politics and religion? What is it currently? So where descriptively, what is it? But also prescriptively, where would you like it to be? It's a great question. And part of my background is, is I grew up in a household where Ronald Reagan and God were neck and neck as the greatest beings in the history of the universe. And, and Christian, Republican, and American were all the same word to us. And everybody I knew was those three things. And so I thought for sure that was it. And, and so I think that has been for Protestant evangelicals, and particularly maybe in, in certain denominations or non-denominational ones, that has been our take that being American Republican Christians, with those words all being pretty interchangeable, is what God commands us to do. And so I think we've seen that grow and grow. And so I, I started the podcast because I was on a sort of a personal life transformation journey in, in, in the early parts of my marriage. And there's much more to the story, but I won't bore you with all of it. But I just really had a sense in the midst of all of this sort of having this spiritual revival of my life that I needed to stop listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I was a big partaker of right-wing media. And, and so I decided I'm going to take a week and not listen to it and not have this intake of right-wing media. And it, if I, I was stunned, in fact, things changed. My, my mindset began to change that quickly after I stopped listening to it. And, and there had always been something inside of me. Of, I wish we could love people. I, I, those sinners out there, they seem to love people, but I'm a Christian and I know God doesn't allow me to love people. I have to hate their sin and have to be divided from them because of their sin. And, and, but they really seem like they love each other and they seem pretty happy. I wish we could be happy too, but I know God doesn't want us to be happy. But someday we'll be in eternity in heaven and we can laugh at those happy people. Yeah, so as a senior leader of a church, founded a church, was the senior pastor for 10 years, I, I saw the impact that right-wing media, right-wing mindsets, and particularly the burgeoning conspiracy theory industry was having on people. And, and they were seeing these conspiracy theories as unique prophecies about what was going on in our culture and were really buying into it. And so I tried to address that a little bit from the pulpit and a little bit in interpersonal things, but it's, it's so ingrained in the culture of the right-wing church. And I didn't step out of leading a church specifically for that. There was a whole lot involved in that. But once I was out, I began having friends around me say, wow, you have an, a unique opportunity now because you're not leading a church and your income isn't at, at risk by speaking out in truth that you can say some of the things other pastors can't. And, and so that was really the genesis of writing the novel, of starting the nonpartisan evangelical podcast, because I believe Christians need to know 
particularly evangelical Christians, that there are Christians out there that, that don't believe Republican, Christian, and American are all the same word, and that God doesn't necessarily require us to vote Republican and vote just staunchly anti-abortion in everything we do. And so just providing that voice, providing proximity with people that don't look like us, I thought was a really important thing to do in this season. It's such a complicated question because politics and religion are related in a lot of ways. And our religious preferences definitely and should influence how we live in the world and how we vote. It, but the trick becomes when it's when they're so inseparably connected that, and when one party is the party of the religion and the other party's the secular party, then that's I think that's the problem. That's interesting because there's these, all these books. I, I remember. There's a lot of Mennonites in town, and probably one of the most famous books in the Mennonite world is The Politics of Jesus. And so there is a political element to religion. So I guess what you're saying is not that you're denying that politics and religion aren't going to affect each other, but that they that people should be more flexible about their relationship? Or could you clarify that a little bit more? Yeah, it's a little bit of a difficult because there is a tension in it. I believe our morality should impact everything we do from politics and voting to everything else. But the thing that Jesus demonstrated, what I see demonstrated in the story of Jesus is you had this group of people. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they were the I would say the good religious people. They were the Little League baseball coaches. They were the, the Girl Scout troop leaders. They, they were your PTA presidents. They, they were the good people of culture. And you had the Sadducees who really became completely political. They were partnered with King Herod to try to change culture. And you had the Pharisees who were had this sort of malleable morality because they believed that the thing that had to happen was the Messiah to appear and overthrow the Roman government and make Israel great again. That was, they believed that was God's purpose for the season. And because of that, they could justify even killing Jesus. Their morality had become so malleable around their desire to see their country restored because that's what they believed was God's purpose that Jesus pointed at them and said, wow, those guys don't have eyes to see or ears to hear what really is going on in the season. But it comes down to a matter of, is my morality impacting my politics and my civic engagement, or is my civic engagement impacting my morality and my spirituality? And some of it comes down to, what is our hope? And so what I see in this right-wing political world of evangelicalism is it's not just about even overturning Roe v. Wade and criminalizing abortion anymore. It's just about gaining power. We just want to win and we want to gain power and we're willing to, to do anything to get it. And, and so people are coming up with all kinds of justifications for their stances. And, and so ultimately, I think what a Christian is to do is my hope has to be in God, not in Donald Trump or any other political leader or any other party. And once we see that our belief in a party is allowing us to demonize others, to justify horrible things like putting kids in cages at the border, or then we have to step back and say, whoa, my stance can be 100%, but my execution of that stance in interrelationship to my culture and to people is off now. And so would I be willing to lose elections or submit myself to something else in order to see 
me walking out the kingdom of God and looking like Jesus, or do I feel it's so important to win these political battles that I'm going to stay with that stance, even if it means I have to justify voting for somebody that I'm embarrassed to vote for on an ongoing basis. So I see there's a tension there. We're not ever voting for anybody that's perfect. But if our hope gets displaced and it starts allowing us to otherize and demonize and do all of those things, then we've partnered with something that's not from heaven at that point. Yeah, it's such a it's such a tricky topic. And I think if from an interpretive standpoint, it's you want people to start with to have this fixed moral center that then they can go and look at different things that different political parties are doing and say, does this match up? But the problem is that we are so tribal that whether you think that's an evolutionary thing geared into us, that we are we're we evolve to want to fit in with whatever the morality is in, in our group, and then therefore just overlook problems in order to be a team player or whatever the source is, that's it, it seems like it's a deeply human problem because I'm much more on the progressive wing of the spectrum, both religious, religiously and politically. And we have the same problems uh, on the left wing spectrum as well, where you have people saying things and on the, on the left wing side, we have a lot more what they call virtue signaling, where if, if you're not, you know, progressive enough, you're kicked out or whatever. Or if you say something, that's slightly off to what someone else thinks the the standard should be, then you're dismissed or you're, uh, what's the word, canceled? No, cancel culture, yeah. Cancel culture, yeah. 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 Anyway, I want to pivot though to talking about what you think the source of the problem is. And there's probably historical things that we could talk about. We could talk about Goldwater. We could talk about the Falwells, which he's been in the news lately. We can talk about <laughs> a few different things. But what is your kind of narrative for how this happened? How did we get here? What and my favorite one of my favorite quotes, and it's wrongly attributed to Einstein. It's not actually something Einstein said, but it it sounds like he would say it, which is if I only had one hour to save the world, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem and only five minutes finding the solution. Obviously, that's hyperbole, but I do think it's probably worth extrapolating out what if we want to separate these two things, like how did they fuse? And because that probably under there probably is some kind of key or solution to getting them apart. Yeah. So it's a great question and, and, a, and a great thought. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head in that the underlying problem is tribalism. And there's probably no communal mindset that leads itself to tribalism more than evangelicalism. Because, hey, we have all truth. We have it in a book. And anybody that doesn't agree with that book or our truth is going to hell and, and God hates them. And we never say that out loud, but deep inside, we have that sense that God likes us and doesn't like them. And he has some other things that he allows them to have good days and bad days, but we have all truth. And so in that, in, in what happened in evangelicalism, I think you could really even trace it back to the beginning of end times eschatology coming out of the Civil War through the turn of the century when these, when we went from having a progressive church that was saying, look, we're getting better. The Civil War was horrible and, and we've come out of it and now we're getting rid of slavery and wow, man is starting to build the kingdom of heaven on earth. And that was the cry of the church. And then World War I came. And it was so horrible and, and such an inhumanity of man 
mankind that all of a sudden these voices that raised up in the church saying, no, the world's not going to get better. It's going to get worse and it's going to continually get worse until God's going to take all of the Christians out of here in this rapture. And then he's going to just really make earth really bad and blow it up. And so now we have this thing where we're just waiting for God to come snatch us out of here, kill all those people, and then we get to come back and rule over a perfect earth. So it becomes this majorly exclusive thing. And, and again, feeds this conspiracy theory idea. My, my parents were convinced that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, and we were going to be raptured out of here at any moment, and 666 was going to be on the hand and head of everyone. So with that as a foundational thing coming through the decades, mix it with the 60s of this cultural overturn and people all of a sudden getting terrified, particularly white people, that, hey, we're going to lose our culture then strong men like Richard Nixon rising up and saying, hey, I'm the law and order guy, and you sensible, i.e. white people, I'm your guy. And so we started putting our hope in strong men. And when Jimmy Carter, the most Christian evangelical president we ever had, didn't meet our standards, we had to think of how do we get rid of this guy? And, and so I'll bring another name into this that you may or may not have heard of, a guy named Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich, he was a Republican political operative. He was working closely with Jerry Falwell Sr. And they and the Carter administration was coming after guys like Falwell and Bob Jones and saying, hey, you have to integrate your universities or we're taking away your tax-exempt status. And so this was a big battle because Liberty College at the time, which is now Liberty University and Bob Jones University, didn't have black people in their school. And then they would admit one or so, and Bob Jones University had a rule that whites and blacks couldn't date each other, things like that. And these guys were thinking, how do we get Carter out of office? And Paul Weyrich was this man, and I've heard the email exists somewhere, the letter or whatever he sent. And he said, these race relation things aren't going to play well with our Christian base, but abortion, Roe v. Wade, that we can play. That'll play. And in 1979, Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell Jr. essentially weaponized abortion as a manipulating voting tool. And it has been thus ever since to where now I hear it from people all the time that if you're not voting anti-abortion, you're not Christian and that's it. And any other issue is secondary to that. And so I really think that tribalism then mixed with this idea of, hey, we have this great manipulation tool of dead babies, and, and there is no other discussion that can take place around that. It really created this situation where a mass of people can easily be moved to vote even for Donald Trump because of abortion as an issue. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny the way these kind of manipulation tactics work. There's similar parallels in, in, in the conversations about race. If you look back at the American colonies, for example, so let's look at Virginia. So for the first 60, 50 to 60 years since from Jamestown on, most of the people working were in indentured servants uh, that were from England. They're typically convicts. And then they're there was, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the rebellion, I think it, Bacon's Rebellion, yeah. So there, there was a, a big uprising by people living in Virginia because of the giant wealth disparities between the two. But as they started to import slavery and race became part of the discourse, it helped to quiet, quiet the poor white settlers living in Virginia. Using manipulation and scare tactics and discourses like racism or, 
abortion. It feels like they've been used since the beginning. And I, I want to talk about something related to conversation because I think it's a, a helpful framework. Uh, so there's this great book by this uh, guy named Arnold Kling, and it's called The Three Languages of Politics. And in it, he talks about liberals see the world as victims and oppressors. Conservatives see the world as a battle between civilization and barbarism. And libertarians see the world as a battle between freedom and coercion. And I think it's a helpful framework for looking at things because I feel like in a lot of ways, the Black Lives Matter protests really demonstrated that we don't, we just don't have the same language to talk to each other anymore because we're so insular and using these specific vocabularies with each other. And I, if you could talk for a minute about just talking with other people, I know this is a little bit of a, uh, a jump, but it's on my brain. And I sure. think one of the, I think one of the, the things that I see is just, there's a lot of talking past each other. That's part of the problem as well. Yeah. I, I, I use the word tension a lot. I, I think we've lost our ability to live in tension that there's not all truth on one side or the other, that actually the American system I've always been in favor of the two-party system versus the British parliamentary system because if we're one people living in tension and saying, okay, here's the personal responsibility capitalism side and here's the social justice, let's take care of people side, and those are constantly pulling against each other, that can work. Okay, we're getting a little far over here and we're forgetting to take care of people and the environment, so let's pull this way. Okay, now we're getting wacky on the lizards. Let's go back that way. And if we could just constantly be pulling on that continuum, but trusting that we're all Americans together at the end of the day, that's how I think the system works. And now today, my side and my people, you just, all you have to say is socialism and everybody's, ah, yeah. I was talking to some person about the election the other day and he's, man, I really don't feel good about Donald Trump, but socialism. And I'm like, define socialism. He's, I've been to Cuba. I know what it looks like. And I, I said, so there's, is there somebody running for president right now that wants to be Fidel Castro? And, and you know, Cuba isn't just socialist. It's a dictatorship. It's, it's, there's a whole bunch more. And, and so we just, we all have our buzzwords. And all you have to do is say that word and everybody's, yeah, okay, I can't vote for socialism. And we can't get to a, tell me what you believe socialism is. And, and can I present that maybe your view of this is not completely true and so I think if we could just get past our buzzwords on both sides in a lot of ways and say that person isn't necessarily evil, they have a different point of view of the world, but maybe we can learn something from each other and build something together living in tension. I, I think that would make all the difference in our culture. And I think we used to be that way. We weren't as good as we thought we were. And I think that's some of the, the veneer that's coming off now. But it, we still made it work together, and, and that's what I'm worried that's breaking down in this season. Hope you're enjoying this millennial conversation about the church. It just gets me really excited to hear the viewpoint. Now, some of you may be scared saying, oh my goodness, he doesn't believe what we believed. That is okay. God loves that stuff. Taking a quick break here to say, hey... How do we keep our mind renewed like it tells us to do in Romans 12 too? I believe coaching is key. We need somebody asking us hard questions that we trust on an ongoing basis. And I am now getting the opportunity to serve as either a spiritual coach for some or an emotional well-being coach for others. And it's the greatest pastoring that Pastor Paul has ever done in his life. 
Maybe you've been thinking, I feel like I'm kind of going through a transition. I'm on this journey of my ideology, my theology being up in the air because I've been hurt by the church. I can help you with that. I'll walk it through with you. Or maybe you're like, hey, I'm, I'm about to go into a transition in my professional career and I need some help on making sure I'm my best. That's my emotional well-being coaching that I do through the Core Leaders Network. Now, I want to tell you this is a little convoluted because I haven't got my new website together yet. I'm going to have all of this coming out soon, but I would love to serve in a coaching capacity with you. So here's how you find out about it. Go to my website, pastor-paul.com. Click on the events contact page, go down and you'll be able to send me a message and just say, hey, I want to know more about coaching and I'll send you a message and we'll get connected and we'll see if my spiritual well or my well-being coaching can help you. Pastor-Paul.com, click on that contact events page and tell me I want to learn more about your coaching and we'll connect and see how it works. Hope you will. Like I said, Pastor Paul has never pastored better than the coaching I'm doing through the coaching that I'm able to do with people right now. That was a little bit grammatically incorrect, but trust me, it's because I'm so excited about what we're doing. And I'm excited about this podcast with Jordan Pinner Maddox as well. Remember, this is part one of a two-parter. Next week, we'll have part two coming out as well, if you're listening to this right as it's released in early February. All right, love you all. Back to the podcast on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast with Pastor Paul. Yeah, I wish we could all sit around a table and go, okay, so we have this problem. We've got this abortion problem. So why is it a problem? And we can talk about it and we can say, I think all of us would like to live in a world where people didn't make that choice all that often. But so what are the ways that we can approach this? We can make it illegal. We can give people healthcare instead so they'll be less likely, contraceptives or whatever. But as opposed to it's a, either one thing or the other completely. And that's, it's just such a, and I, our country is really incentivized to not agree because right. we just have these uh, political systems that have been set up where you you just appeal to your base and you can't be bipartisan, which is what I want to talk about next. Which, and this is a, this is an interesting topic. I can I piggyback on your abortion oh, go ahead, go ahead. right yeah, there, yeah. and I'll do it quickly so you can get on to the next thing. But you are a hundred percent. And I try to tell my Christian friends, like first off, okay, this idea that criminalizing abortion is the number one thing on God's heart. I, I say, show that to me in the Bible. And they're actually, it actually isn't in there. <laughs> There's really nothing in the Bible about abortion. And people say, don't murder. I say, does the Bible say that abortion is murder and life begins at conception? And I do that not to say, come out of that belief system. I'm saying, is it the hill that we die on amongst our all else? And I think if we could say, because if we could take some of that emotion out of it and say, Democrats, do you love it when women ha have an unwanted pregnancy? No. Christians, do you love it when there's an unwanted pregnancy? No. We all agree unwanted pregnancy is a bad thing. So how do we, instead of trying to impose our law on each other, how do we all go after unwanted pregnancy together? And, and even the Democrats, Bill Clinton said, let's make abortion safe, legal, and rare. They've taken out the rare. And Bernie Sanders is, you cannot be a Democrat and be and not be pro-choice. And, and so when you make everything so binary like that, you're forcing people to go to the extreme of one side or the other. And, and yeah, why can't we have a discussion about, none of us are 
find it a victory when there's an unwanted pregnancy. In fact, very few Americans, I think, find it a victory when there's an abortion. So let's really figure out how to get rid of unwanted pregnancy rather than imposing a law to criminalize that young woman making that decision and criminalizing the doctor that wants to help her. Yeah, let's do all the things you talked about and see if we can make it work. Yeah, because I think it also comes from a place of people just not wanting to understand where the other person's coming from, because I think there's this mythology and on the conservative side, and I know it because that's where I grew up, is that it's just, that it's like an easy thing that like someone just has an right. abortion. It's like going to going to the convenience store and picking up a candy bar. It's not. It's, Having five or six of them. Yeah. yeah it's like just, it's, it's just, and they also understand, I, I feel like if we actually had conversations, we would understand what, where does this concept of a woman's right to choose come from? Does it come from a place where women have died or women have been forced to bring pregnancies to term that maybe should? There's all this underneath it, but we can't actually get there because we're not willing to listen. But And, and Jesus said, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I say, don't, if you speak angry to your brother or you call your brother a fool, you're worthy of hellfire. So to me, the, the, again, Jesus was constantly saying, hey, your theological purity isn't as important as how you interrelate to people. And so I think if, you, if we see God from this bigger perspective, we can start to see that he actually loves that mother just as much as the fetus, and he has a solution for the whole of them together. And that Jesus never said, hey, here's a biblical principle. Let's go impose it upon people. In fact, he was angry at the laws being imposed on people by the Pharisees. And so I, I think if we look at that, we could say, okay, God may not be in favor of the law and particularly our political battle to get there. He, would, he might be more in favor of us doing things that allow us still to influence culture and see things change for women. So I know I took you off track of your next no, question, no. but I, and I, I, I think that's a really important part of it. Absolutely. I think the world would be a lot better place if some conservative folks read read about Margaret Sanger and actually understand what Planned Parenthood does, but that's probably too much to ask. I, I want to talk about churches for a second, and I've got a few axes to grind, but I promise I won't grind them too finely or too long. Do you go to a church now? I do. You don't, I do. You don't have to tell me which one or anything. Just Yeah. I have had a long... Uh, complicated relationship. So my dad is a minister and is a denominational minister. And from my point of view, one of the biggest problems I see, and this is the problem of Protestantism, which is that the big sin of Protestantism is schism, is churches continually separating and breaking and separating and breaking. And Protestantism's kind of inability to deal with different beliefs. And that comes from a certain place. It comes from a place in the Reformation where it made sense. But obviously things, all you have to do is read uh, Roth's, Douthat's book, Bad Religion, to give you a sense of how out of control this kind of proliferation of different religious groups has become. And I don't want to say that like you, you should just attend a denominational church or whatever religion you are, and you should stick with one like the name brand necessarily. But I think what I am saying is non-denominational churches, one of the problems that they have is that there's not a sense of accountability. There's not 
an organizational st structure that could check someone if they say some crazy shit, which can happen <laughs> and which does happen. For the record, my, my dad is a, a Baptist and Baptists definitely say crazy shit all the time, but there's a structure there to, to account for that. But you have these proliferation of these mega churches that are non-denominational. Their pastors are basically popes, right? They, they are the sola scriptura as far as, you know, they're concerned. And from my point of view, they seem like part of the problem here, which is they want to appeal to their congregations. And so they'll use politics, they'll use whatever they want, and then there's no checking on it. So am I wrong? It, it, are non-denominational churches the problem or are they not? <laughs> there's probably not an easy yes or no. The, the problem that you're pointing to is an absolute yes. I, I guess the, the other side of that coin is what do you do when the denomination goes wrong? And the Catholic Church was very wrong when Luther pounded his thesis to the door. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. Let me pause real quick. Yeah. I agree with you before you jump in. But the question is there has to be, a, there, it seems like there should be some kind of limit, right? <laughs> there are issues that you maybe create schism over. There are some to, to use, we're getting deep into my seminary education right now. Like nice. Primary and secondary issues within religion, there are the issues that you can't, you quote unquote, are like the hill you'll die on. And then there are issues about how you perform your services or whatever that can fluctuate based on your preferences. And so it seems like there's a lot of churches breaking apart because of the secondary issues more than the primary issues. But yeah. anyway, I, I'll, I'll let you get into it because I'm just curious your take. And I think that sometimes revolution is amazing and necessary, but then if you just celebrate the revolution, then the next time somebody disagrees, then they're like, wow, that revolution was really fun. Let's do another revolution. And to me, it's what happened with the Civil War in the United States. It's like, hey, you guys fought a war to leave, so why can't we fight a war to leave? That's how we were born. So why can't we do that now, I think? And, and so I think that's what a lot of churches do. Is, and like you say, crazy shit is a great description of it. Uh, I, there's an estimate that there's some 10,000 Protestant denominations. And when you really start getting into subsets of subsets, some say it's as many as 33,000 Protestant denominations in the world, as well as, as non-denominational or unaffiliated. But I, I go back to tension again. And I was raised up in a, an organization they disagree that they're an organization, but the Vineyard Association of Churches is where I got my training. And we ended up leaving and, and planting a, an independent church because I, there, was, there were some things I was pursuing in my heart that they're like, well, that's not us. And so I had to say, then I must not be us, you know, <laughs> and had to make that choice, which was, a, which was heartbreaking. Yes, I think denominationalism and, and lack of denominationalism are, are equally problematic. And the, what I see again with Jesus and how he dealt with religion at the time is you had a group of people who are saying, Scripture is settled. We have interpreted exactly how it is. And Jesus was coming along saying, no, how you've interpreted that Scripture, let me show you another facet of who God is. And when he would say, you've heard this, but I say this and, and flip that script on them, they would say, you're a heretic. And I think we do the same today. I, I think I can say to people who know that was settled at the 1100 Council of whatever. And I can say, but 
is God constrained by that council of guys or can he come in this season and say, hey, I see this a little differently and, and am I in charge or is the book in charge? And that's a very scary thing for Christians to hear. At some point, Jesus came to Peter and said, I want you to eat this, eat these animals. And Peter was like, no, I'll never do that because there's a book that tells me not to. And, and, and Jesus was like, no, you're going to and you're going to go to these Gentiles' homes. And so I, I think we, we lost our ability to wrestle I, I think what God wants is to give us scripture and then we wrestle over it and say, yeah, I, I understand that interpretation, but I'm seeing this different facet of God's character in this season. Uh, and it's such, and so we just have to wrestle with it. And, and, and sometimes we're not going to be able to settle that, but not divide over it. Uh, and I look at it like we, we have this thing where Jesus said marriage is one man and one woman. And, and so people are like, see, that's what the Bible says. And I, I say, yeah, but David didn't believe that. Abraham didn't believe that. They had multiple wives and God never once said, don't have that wife. And then people are like, they have their explanation for it. But so I'm saying like, maybe God can look at gay people and say, yes, I know what scripture says, but here's how I want you to interrelate with this humanity today. And, and let's find a way to, to work in that. And, and so when we become rigid and inflexible and we say all that can be known has been decided, that's when people start saying, screw you, I'm out of here because I see it differently. And so I just think when the staunchness of sort of fundamentalist belief systems cause division in denominations and ultimately cause people to say, I, if I have to buy the whole bit or be out, I guess I choose to be out. And, uh, and then take that forward. And I think we're seeing a, a large portion of the millennial generation saying to the church, evangelical and Catholic, if I have to buy the whole bit, which includes your political beliefs, forget it. I'm freaking out of here and I'm never going back. And so long-winded answer, but I, and I think we look at that and say, that's horrible. And I think God is saying, no, maybe I want the church to look different in this next season. So I think we have to be flexible to move with God, understand scripture, study it, learn what we've known through history, but be ready for God to say, hey, this has been your understanding for a long time. Am I allowed to challenge that? And, and I think we're in a season where those real tenets of, of Christianity are being shaken and we're rebelling quite a bit against that shaking. So a lot of what we're talking about are both political and religious problems. They're, 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 was that a totally crazy answer, by the way? That's oh, no, it wasn't a totally crazy answer. I, 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 I think I do agree with you that I think that there are problems of denominationalism, too. And, they, and especially if your denomination is doing something that you don't feel is ethical, I think, I think in a lot of ways, it makes sense what you're saying. I think that is not America's main problem, though. I think America's main problem is it's just about me. It's we are not a collective. We don't look at things collectively. We look at things individually. And, but when we do that, I think it degrades our institutions, which we can see in politics. When, we don't, when it's like my vote doesn't count, my, it's we don't vote, or I... A lot of these things are related to this kind of like individual, if my $10 doesn't get me this, then I'm just not even going to go. And so I, for me, it feels emphasizing this kind of, I don't want to say heresy because I don't think that's the right word, but like this individual tendency to just want to create your own thing is why we have, is why we keep, I, I keep bringing up Ross Douthat, but he just published this great book called Something Decadent. I'm halfway through it somewhere too many books to read. But I think that's part of the reason why we're in decay as a society in some ways is that 
we are all just so isolated. And mm. I, I and with the younger people, which I am of that millennial generation, it's it's hard it's hard to get up off my ass to go to church even if I wanted to, because it just <laughs> it's it's <laughs> I just I feel like it's in a lot of ways so removed from everything half the time yeah. and I'm just like, I don't even, I'm not even sure I want to be there. It's not a value in your life. And I, I yeah. and that's not me saying that necessarily personally, because I, right. religion is an important part of my life, but it's for people like me. And that's more who I'm talking about. I'm speaking on behalf of many, many I, I went to Fuller Seminary and it was a, it was a flip of a coin, whether you're going to leave Fuller in ministry or leave Fuller an atheist bartending. So it really was a flip of the coins. And I, I just think my generation is struggling to see the value. And obviously for me, like I think the value is beyond theological beliefs, just being in a community with people you disagree with and holding that, to use your word, tension. What, what would that look like? I love, I, I, see, because I keep hearing that from millennials. I, and, I, and I'll shut up and let you talk, but I'm, when we talk about denominations, I, I'm in a place of, is God saying, I, I never really wanted this to be meet in a building four times a month. That's never what this was about. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I think millennials are voting with their feet and Gen Zers even more are voting with their feet. So we're moving into a post traditional church world in this next generation. And so I've been, if you don't mind me taking it this direction, what would that look like for you? What would church that would be a value in your life that would cause you to get out of bed looking. See, and I think this is where the misconception is. So like what, when I talk to, because I have quite a few friends that are in the pastoral world, having gone to seminary and are out there, and there's this kind of misconception, I want to say from, I don't know what the category right underneath Boomer is, but that category up to Boomer, this like misconception that like we need more music and light shows and donuts and I, I, like young people <laughs> crap, but I just don't think that's the thing. I think what will draw people in is if church does things, that's what I think really matters. So the churches that show up at the protests, the churches that feed the poor, I think those kind of ethical things are what's keeping young. Sure. There's young people that show up to the young adult service on Saturday night, but they're mainly there just to meet attractive people so they can go it's just it's a dating app and if any church thinks that they actually are recruiting young people through those services they're morons and they need to do better marketing because that's not what's happening they're not there for your message they're there because they saw how attractive the people were on the instagram and then they showed up that's what actually happened so i'm a firm believer and i'm i'm a bad example because for me as someone that's more episcopal geared like i when i show up to a church i'm looking for almost a Catholic looking mass. That's what gets me excited. It gets me excited to do things that are historical. It gets me excited to do things in unison with other people. So I may be a bad example, but I I honestly think there's a lot of misguided marketing thinking and a lot of people that work in the church that are called consultants. They're just full of shit. They're just, it's just, it's a bunch of stuff that will get you shallow results and doesn't actually get at what the problem is. I don't think it's just you. I, that's what I'm hearing from 
every young adult. And I'm in that, I'm in that Xer group. I'm, uh, I'm just younger than the boomer generation. And uh, you're going to ask me about books coming up, I know. And so Andy Stanley, a pastor out of Atlanta, wrote a, a great book called Ir- Irresistible. And he said exactly what you're saying. He said, we're losing the young people, big screens and skinny jeans and smoke machines. Those are our, that's what we're going to do to get the young people back. And I think you're absolutely right. I hear it from young adults all the time. I used to say kids because I'm an old guy, but then I realized millennials actually have kids. You're not kids anymore, but it's, it's more about, hey, can we argue about things? Can we have discussions and challenge precepts and, and learn together and to community and social action, and really wrestling with deep concepts is is what I keep hearing from millennials over and over again. And so that's what churns my heart and really is what the nonpartisan evangelical is all about, is can we say, yes, you're allowed to ask these really hard questions. You're allowed to ask, does Buddhist have some good things in their religion and the Islamic people have some good, am I allowed to even think about these things and be, I think if the church could be affirming and say, yes, we're going to, we're going to ask hard questions and we're going to delve into them and not cater to being a boomer church that makes boomers happy because they're the tithers. Then I think we can start to change things. And it's an interesting season where I'm talking to my pastor friends in, in COVID days because in the 10 years I was pastoring, we were constantly asking each other, how do we get people out of the church? How do we get them out there doing things? And here we go. Governor Newsom does it for us. And what do we do? We start having lawsuits and fighting to get back in the church. So I think the next generation is going to be a church outside the walls. It's going to be like this online. It's going to be community in, in bars I just think it's going to look very different than what boomers and Xers have known for a long time. And I think God's all for it. Yeah, I think, I think there's some kind of technological reformation going to happen in large part because you've got these mega churches with these huge staffs that I know are struggling in the pandemic which is probably a good thing for the world, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's just a challenge. I'm, I'm going to bring us back to a topic I wanted to cover, which is how to think about solutions in this. I've been watching the, the Supreme Court committee discussions and the panel and the interviews with Amy Coney Barrett and just thinking about, or just watching people talk, watching these various senators from the Cross the Aisle talk and then I also think about these, these different groups in Fresno, like Faith in the Valley and these different interfaith groups. And Faith in the Valley does a lot of good work, but there's a lot of people that are not involved in that are part of the religious community. And it, it feels like, I, I, I guess what my question is, do you see, does this problem need to be handled politically first because it's such a, it's such, I, I, I just don't see religion solving this problem. Do you feel like, or do you think it is an ecumenical problem if Christians of different varieties start hanging out with liberal Christians, Muslims, and Buddhists, and Hindus, or whatever, that then that will solve the political problem? Do you see it as a religious problem or a political problem that needs to be addressed? Yes. <laughs> okay. I yeah. No, I, I figured it was both, but <laughs> I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, can we truly uncouple things enough to really, like, can we uncouple religion and politics enough to get people with each other? Do we have to solve that political problem first? 
So my, my baseline, just being as honest as I can answer, is in some ways, I think this is a generational problem, and it's not really going to change or be able to change until we have a generational shift. I, I, I think as millennials, and I'm not saying millennials are all good and boomers are all bad. I'm just saying boomers have made their stand and, and they're here. And some of this is just going to take a generational shift. But okay, so now not being just a nihilist and wanting to say, what can we do today? You can be a nihilist. That's fine. I, I, I agree with you, I think in a lot of ways. But the truth is this, and I was actually, I have one of the podcasts that's going to come out before this is with Donald Monroe, who's, who writes on classical and theater and mm-hmm. stuff and arts in town. And we were talking about classical music. And I was like, how do we get more people asking your question about classical music? Because I'm a classical music nut. And I was like, how do I get more young people like me into classical music? And Donald was basically said, they'll just get older and they'll start listening to it. <laughs> are, are today's millennials going to be tomorrow's boomers? <laughs> it, it's quite possible. Or are they going to be the other side of the same coin as you've been talking about through this podcast? Or, or is then the progressive going to become the religious political stance going forward, which it has great danger of becoming. You can be just as staunch on the other side of it. My wife was an elected official. She always says she was never a politician. She was a government government employee as mayor of Fresno and a lover of good government. And and we always say, God loves government. He hates politics. Um, Politics is a battle for power and manipulation. Government is serving your community. Government is like, how do we make sure we have enough fire and, and enough good roads and enough parks? And what are the solutions for our people? So when she was in as mayor and going in, we decided my job was to make sure to always pull her out of anything that looked political. And so we would debrief what was going on with her. And I would say, honey, that sounds political to me. There was a, a, a big developer in town that you would know who he is if I told you who he is. And he like tried to kind of mess with her during the election. And he had put a bunch of money in for her opponent and ultimately spent a ton of money trying to make sure she didn't get elected. And so when she got elected, people came around to her and say, Hey, this is how this works. Now you have to punish him to show people they can't do this to you. And if you don't punish him, then everybody's going to think you're a pushover and they're going to think they can do it to you. And, and, and we sat and we're like, okay, that, that's just not who we are. And we're not going to do that. Now she did say to this person, you had a lot of special entree to the mayor's office in the past, and that's over. We're not doing that anymore. But if you have a project that's going to help the community, I'm all in for you. I will help. I'm here to represent the citizens of Fresno. You are one. And if you're doing something that's good for the city, I'm in, even with our differences. And so I think if we can start to look at solutions rather than political power and say, hey, there's this tension place that can work that if I don't if I say we disagree, but that doesn't make you evil or stupid, now we can sit around the table and start to say, okay, I get it. There are some things that we're different on. We're not going to cross those bridges, but what can we work together on? Where do we have similarities? Where can we make this work together? What are our common goals? And then when, if somebody won't come to that table, then you can just go, okay, I'm not pay attention to you because you're not moving in the same direction as us and, and you can't be trusted. 
there is that. But then you start to see who's going to come around the table. And right now, outside of being mayor, my wife's working with these just really diverse groups of business people and social justice people and saying, how do we resolve the economic inequality issues of Fresno? How do we resolve the race issues of Fresno? How do we erase the scars left by redlining in Fresno and having people of, of, of privilege, if I can use that word, from white races or privileged races and, and people from the oppressed races, whatever terminology we want to use on that without me turning people away, getting at the same table and saying, what's the reality of what we can fix here to move our community forward? And I think something amazing is, is happening in Fresno around that. So it's just going to take a bunch of us being willing to submit ourselves to, I'm not going to get 100% my way. And I may have to hear some things from people that don't seem very fair to me, but I'm willing to hear that in order for us to be, come together as a people and move forward. And I see that happening on a micro level and a micro scale in Fresno. And heck, maybe if we can make that work in a village setting like we're doing, it can, it can start to spread to other places. So that's, to me, that's the solution is a bunch of people humbling themselves and turning from their ways and then letting God start to heal things out of that service rather than our, our political battle. Yeah, I'm completely on the same page. I've, I probably need to do a better job of interviewing more conservative people on here. It's partially just the people who say yes, but also the people I'm interested in learning from. And I'm I think one of the, this is a weird, funny example, but I, 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 use, I use the masterclass uh, soft app or whatever, and I'm taking this class, and it's taught by David Axelrod and Karl Rove, which is the funniest combo of nice. people, because during the Bush administration, I was in, I was in college, and I wrote like uh, opinion op-eds for the student paper, and I just remember saying, I think, writing things about Karl Rove being the closest to the devil we'd ever seen or something. Uh, and I'm now I'm taking a class and I'm learning from, but I think at least from someone on the left, I think I, I think people, I would love it if the left set an example in initiating bipartisan work around issues and instead of just shutting people out. And I, if anyone wants to challenge me, I'll go 10 rounds with you on why it's much more important to work with people because the people that say that we shouldn't talk or we shouldn't associate with people, you're the people that are going to stop the good work from being done and you're going to end up hurting the causes that you purportedly support. So those people don't matter ultimately. Yeah. And, and it's why I'm chastising my side right now is what the Republicans did with the Supreme Court nominee of Merrick Garland was heinous and horrible. And so in 2020, I get politics, I understand, but let's do it because we can. That's ridiculous. It, it's, and, and then to justify with all kinds of other things, I, I think how powerful would it be if the Republican Senate said, you're right, let's not do this because we're just, we're denigrating the institution. And hey, it may cost us down the line, but the country is too important. The Senate is too important. So if our own people would rise up and say, guys, don't do this. Because by the way, if you do this and the Dems win the Senate and the White House, which is a real possibility, then they can, do, they can justify anything based upon what you did in 2016 and 2020. So you're right. It, it, when I submit to something and I subject myself to loss, 
I'm actually doing something that has a long-term good beyond me. And that's what's just so appalling about the Supreme Court thing going on right now to me is if the Democrats decide, if a Democratic Senate and Democratic White House decide, yes, we are going to expand the Supreme Court to 15 justices. We are going to add D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam uh, as states. And they can say with, you know, again, it will be wrong and I'll be yelling about it. But they truly can justify, hey, 2016, 2020, Republicans, you said, if you have the power to do it. And so we have the power and we'll do it. Sometimes yeah. you have to lay down your power to, for the greater good. Yeah, I think Lindsey Graham may personally uh, learn this lesson if Jamie Harrison in South Carolina takes him out. And, Aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> I would love it so much. And I, Lindsey Graham shot himself in the foot. I think yesterday, again, when he said the, the he's, he, I think he was obviously being sarcastic. If you listen to the clip, yeah. I'm not being, I don't want to be clickbaity with people. He was obviously being sarcastic, but he said good old days of segregation. Those are the words that came out of his mouth. Uh, and when you put stuff in print media, guess what? There is no tone. So you got to be careful. And you're not going to it. And so, yeah. you know, and I, I, I'm yeah. not a, I'm not a big politically correct guy. But at some point, when you say enough stupid things, th this is coming out of somewhere inside of you. And, yeah. and so, yes, it was sarcastic, but it's not anything I would ever say. Yeah. It's not, and, not even a so joke. Not that's even in joke. him somewhere to come out oh, even of yeah. sarcasm. Oh, yeah. and, and anybody can say one stupid thing. Anybody can say two stupid things. But at some point, you're like, hey, there's a lot of stupid things in there. And, and this may be who he is. Guess where the Civil War started? <laughs> I mean, it started in South Carolina, baby. Let's talk about people that inspire you for a minute, positive things. So there are there, you mentioned Andy Stanley before, but beyond him, are there other interesting political or religious thinkers that you think are doing the work that you want to see in the world, which is a lot less politically polarized takes on politics and religion? I, you mentioned going to Fuller Seminary. I've had the chance to connect with the president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laberton. And I, I think President Laberton is a really important voice in this season. Very measured. He's not on the extreme, I hate evangelicalism, but he, he wrote a book called Still Evangelical? Question mark, And really challenged some things. So I think he's there are guys like him, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in, in New York, who are asking really important questions into Christianity. And we're in such a unique season. And Laberton and Keller wouldn't agree on everything, and I probably don't agree with both of them on everything, but I just love that they're asking hard questions. And then there's a guy named Shane Claiborne. I don't know if it's Shane Claiborne and, and, and a group called Red Letter Christians. Now, they're way to the left. Let me go to the left here with my hand. They're way to the left, and, and I wouldn't agree with them on everything. But again, I just think they're creating a discomfort that's really important in this season. And it's a unique time. Because I would say the spirit that we're battling against in the church wasn't invented by Donald Trump. It's not embodied in Donald Trump. He's a symptom of it, not the manifestation of it, not the embodiment of it. But at the same time, I personally think it's extremely important that he get voted out as president. I, I don't know, and I, I don't mean to be dramatic, but I'm not sure the country survives another four years. There's certainly not in the, the way it looks and is configured now. So even though I'm going after something bigger than this one election, I do think this is a really significant election of determining who we're going to be going forward as a people. And so 
guys like Steve Schmidt, who, who was John McCain's uh, campaign head, and a guy like Stuart Stevens, who has been a Republican operative for years, uh, and the, the guys with the Lincoln Project, if you know about the Lincoln Project, they're Republicans who are stepping up and saying, I cannot be a part of this. And in some ways, they're a little bit vengeful, and sometimes I'm cringy about them, but I but I think so in both of these areas of republicanism and Christianity, people that are creating ripples and asking hard questions and, and causing us to be uncomfortable, I think are really important voices in this season. So those, those are people I'm, I'm spending a lot of time reading. Michael Gerson, who's a writer for the Washington Post, is probably the premier evangelical uh, writer outside of the church in the country. And so just people like that, that are asking really hard questions, challenging our precepts. Those are people that I think are doing really important work right now. Yeah, I think it's important that evangelicals take stock and really think about things. As an outsider, or as someone that was formerly part of that world, let's just be frank. The church is in many ways dying, at least that version of the church. And it is very generational. So it's quite literally dying and probably more so during the pandemic if we're talking about generations. <laughs> so I, there's some serious stock that needs to be taken if, if, if they want to be relevant. I think certainly there's going to be a new crop of people that have their 14 children that show up to the evangelical church in Nebraska. Like I, they will always exist. The truth is that most people are living on the coast or are our country is migrating that way and we're going to have these big open, you know, empty lands in the center, which is interesting, but it's yeah. a whole different topic. I do think. And, and the president tweeted horrible things about California today. That's right. At some point, if you're California, do you just say, Hey, you guys, Mississippi, you really don't like us. And you know what? We don't like you and our law. We're not the same people anymore. And at some point does California, Oregon, Washington, do they say, no, thanks. Let's go on our own and see what happens. And I could see that happening, or at least that conversation starting it, it, with another four years of a Trump administration. And, and those are the things that worry me. And I would never, in, never thought that before th this last few years. But now I'm starting to say, hey, maybe we're, maybe it's just too big and too diverse and too unwieldy. Maybe it's just a democracy like our forefathers envisioned can't work if we don't consider ourselves the same people. And, and right now, I don't think we do consider ourselves the same people. And that makes it awfully tough to make it work. So and, and when you have the president saying it out loud, that does make it hard for us to consider ourselves that. Let's, let's finish with talking about books. Books are my favorite thing to talk about. Right. And I think for me, I think I, here's my challenge, and this is me speaking to people that may be more politically geared my way, which is I think you need, I think one of the ways forward is regaining a respect for con good conservative thinking because there is things to be learned there. And I, I, if you only live in your, in your, what's an echo chamber or whatever, then you're all, then <laughs> you're just going to be a pretty limited person. And so my challenge oftentimes with more progressive thinkers is to read libertarians and read thoughtful conservatives. And that will do a lot of work in challenging your perspective on things. So I, I already brought him up twice. Here's the third time. So Ross Douthat's book, he's a conservative Catholic, but I read him. He's my kind of go-to when I want to think about thoughtful conservatives. I read him. Tyler Cowen's work, he's a libertarian and he does interesting stuff about the economy. There's a bunch more. I there's a lot to be learned by reading outside of your little 
pasture that you live in. And I think you can grow a lot more by actually engaging with the best ideas that are on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what I would advertise today in thinking about bipartisanship and how we communicate. But what are some books you'd recommend? Yeah. First off, on New Year's Day 2017, I read Letter from Birmingham Jail. First, I, I think maybe I read it back in high school in a history class or something when I you know, couldn't possibly have cared less. But reading that book really impacted me. I'm sorry. My, what do you want, Ben? Okay. I'm so sorry, Jordan. No, you're good. You're good. All of a sudden, I looked up and my son was standing here and he needed my keys. All right. There you go. Sorry. Hopefully you can edit this out. No, it's all good. <laughs> all right. In, on New Year's Day 2017, I read for the first time, probably, maybe I read it back in school or something, but I read Letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. It's very short. It's a pamphlet rather than a book. But just reading his take on I'm most disappointed with the white moderates shook me. You know, it, it really made me challenge who I am. And so I recommend everybody read that and read it in a way that that you're not the hero of the story, you're the white moderate. You don't have to be the clanner, but you could see that 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 King was saying, no, it's actually the white moderate that is the problem. And so from that, I was given a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, a book that was written actually in the 30s by a guy named Thurman. And it talked about Jesus being from an oppressive class, an oppressed class that was also an oppressor of others at the same time and what that looks like and, and tying that in with our culture today. And so those were two old reads that, that were really important to me. But in modern thinking, I, I actually think Rob Bell is a really important read for evangelicals. I don't know if you've read any of Rob Bell's stuff, but his book, Love Wins, I think is as heretical as it can get, but it just challenges us to think, is there another way to look at some of these things and look at people differently? And, and so that was a, a significant book for me. And, and then I love Malcolm Gladwell. I think Talking to Strangers is a, a really important book in our, in, in our time in history. If you want to understand, you keep hearing all this talk about systemic racism. I don't get it. I don't get it. I think Gladwell's brilliant in how he spelled that out and showed us how it works. And uh, so those are some books that are really important to me in this season. I think that are, are some things. Everybody in my stream, Richard Rohr is a really important writer that, that everybody's reading now, and Tim Keller, who I mentioned before. But so those are some of the things that are really impacting me right now. Yeah. God love Richard Rohr. I, he's a funny little hobbit out there in the desert, but he writes, I, his book, uh, falling Upward was very important read for me in thinking about he's Jungian and talking about first half and second half of life. But those are all great recommendations. And I think there's, you got to meet people where they are with books. And I think we all, as someone that grew up in the evangelical world, like reading Rob Bell was like, whoa. And now I've moved on to David Bentley Hart. I'm not sure if you've seen That All Shall Be Saved. That's like, uh, that's when I would recommend to you, which is an interesting read. But uh, What's the name again? So it's called uh, That All Shall Be Saved. All uh, Shall Be Saved. Okay. By David Bentley Hart. So that's another interesting one. But I think books in some way, we should look for books that either bring us new perspectives on things. I recommend people to read history. That's a big one that people, especially in America, we need to read a little bit more history. I think things would be a little, our conversations about stuff would be different, but, but read books that challenge you and are not just yeah. reinforcing what you already think. I, I could sit around and read the new Jim Crow 500 times, but I, the, the second time even, you know, I think that would be 
great for our world is if we read much more diversely. Yeah. And not, we have a saying in our stream called eat the meat and spit out the bones. And so like the 1619 project. Everybody now who is uncomfortable with feeling racism around are now discounting it. Oh, it, it turned out it's not true. In, instead, why can't we say, yes, they've admitted they went the wrong way with some things. And, and yes, we know there are problems. But at the same time, there's some really important stuff to know in there. And, and so why can't we say, okay, let's be really honest about what's not working here and, and where they went wrong which I think they're trying to be, and, but still learn from that. And I always point to Romans 12, 2 of the Bible says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can know the good and perfect will of God. And I, I think what the writer of that passage is saying is don't be stuck in your bubble. The, the age doesn't mean, it, it means like the era in which you live. Don't be conformed. I think what he's saying is don't be stuck in your bubble, but allow your mind, and that verse is crafted in a way to say, renewing is an ongoing process. You should continually be renewed. And so I always say, how can you know what you believe if you're not having your beliefs challenged? If you're not willing to hear somebody tell you something you don't want to hear and you don't want to know, then you're not growing and learning. You're not being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that verse says, then you cannot know the will of God for the season. And Jesus turned to those religious guys and he says, they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear because they're stuck in the leaven of the Pharisees, he called it. So I think you're right on. We should be willing to read books that make us cringe, that make us go, oh, no way, that can't be true. And really then start to, to understand what we believe and what we're supposed to believe in the season. Yeah, there's a term called quake books, books that shake your beliefs. Why, this is maybe a good opportunity to talk about your book. And can you share a little bit about Joseph Comes to Town and why you chose to wrote it and wrote it? Did I just say wrote it? <laughs> you did. Yeah, I, I, it's been a long, I spent a lot, I, I'm on Zoom all day teaching. So I get, into, I, I get a wow. few footpaws. Why'd you write it? And can you give us just a brief synopsis of a little teaser about what it's about? Yeah, it's called Joseph Comes to Town, he said, and, and, and I have a subtitle that says, When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. And I, I had a lot of concepts I wanted to write into a book, and a lot of people were telling me, you should write a book. Uh, but I kept thinking, what the world needs is another Christian book. We don't have enough Christian books out there, which I say with great sarcasm. Yes. And I read a book and saw a movie called The Shack. Have you ever heard of The Shack? I, that's one of those ones that I just never got around to reading. Yeah. I had heard many things about it. Scary things. But Heretical, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those things. But what inspired me about it is it was, instead of writing precepts, it was in a story. And Jesus told a lot of stories. And so I decided to write a story, never having written a novel before. But I just had an imagination of what would, if Jesus were incarnate, walking on earth today in America, what would he say to the evangelical church? Based upon how he interacted with the church of his day, how would he interact with the evangelical church today? And, and so that's really the, the, the concept of the novel. This guy, Joseph, shows up in, in this very conservative, very evangelical town in the middle of a red state and begins to critique the evangelical political church and, and then the way people interact and react to that. And so that's really the, the concept of the book. If you want to know what Jesus would say to Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and John MacArthur today, this is what I believe he would be saying to them in, in this book and how he'd be interacting with culture as a whole. I think 
he would be saying very interesting things to Jerry Falwell Jr. of late. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we can, we don't need to go into that, those details, but man, that was a fun evening spiral on uh, Reddit, exploring the details of that. So yeah, we can find your book on Amazon and where can we, what's the name of your website? Just give us the rundown of where to find your stuff. Yeah, it's the Nonpartisan Evangelical. So you can, uh, NPE, Nonpartisan Evangelicals. It's npepodcast.com. And you can buy the book directly from me, or they can join my Patreon community and, and get an autographed copy of it or all those things, or they can buy it on Amazon. And that's where I do my podcasting and blogging. And, and I have all the stuff, YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And I've gotten into TikTok now. So you're, I'm now you're a TikTok. You're leaping me. I, I have not <laughs> ventured into TikTok. In part because I have some some security paranoia with with who's watching or whatever, but there, <laughs> TikTok seems like a really dark drug. It seems addictive, as far as I can tell. At least what my middle schoolers tell me about their time on TikTok. One minute it's eight p.m. and the next minute it's two in the morning. <laughs> It's true. I think one thing I've decided is privacy is gone. My wife and I were talking about our dog's getting a little bit old and we're like, maybe we need to get a ramp so he can get up on the beds and things. And, and so what happens? I go on Facebook and there's an ad for a dog ramp. So I think privacy is over. I, I, so I, and I had a social media consultant who's saying to me, he said, Facebook is 60 years old and tomorrow it'll be 85. He said, Instagram is 30 years old, and tomorrow it'll be 45, and TikTok is 16, and tomorrow it'll be 25. And so he's, you got to get on TikTok. So I, I'm delving into TikTok as a 55-year-old man. It's a little bit scary. I think there's a few different beliefs. You can either reject technology, or you can fully accept it, or you can use it in a way that you want it to be used. Now, there is questions. I'm a big believer, and this is another book recommendation, in Cal Newport, who's one of my favorite uh, kind of writers about productivity. There's a question of how much we can control social media time where it controls us. But I think rejecting technology out of hand and without seeing its uh, potential to reach people is irresponsible in my view. But we can go on a whole, we, I'm sure we could talk forever. Uh, it's not going away, Jordan, no matter how I hard know, we may I want know, it to. I know. I, it's good that we're ending this with me being a curmudgeon. I think it's a <laughs> you know, perfect little thing to show that I'm the one being, quote unquote, conservative, advocating lots of books and being watchful of TikTok. So. I do have to ask you one question, though, because yeah. I do a local podcast called Two Guys Talking Fresno. When yeah. you say you're Fresno's best podcast is that because you're the best podcast in Fresno or is that because you're having the best of Fresno on your podcast? It's the latter for sure. And <laughs> if you actually look, the title of the show is Fresno's Best. And whenever I put Fresno's Best Podcast, the P is always lowercase okay, to designate what it is. Craig brought up the same question with me and made fun of me. And you're being much more gentle than he was. Yes, I, I, I recognize I am an upstart. But you got to come in guns blazing because there's Absolutely. a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of noise and people are not going to listen to you unless you're loud. So I just came out and said, D-E-S-T. Good we go. for you. You be you, man. You do you. <laughs> I'm all for it. Thanks. All right, Paul. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure being on, Jordan. Thanks for having me.